Yes, uh, thank you for having me. I want to publicly thank uh, Pastor Paul for giving me the invitation to come and the session as well. Um, my name is Aaron, Pastor Aaron Lira. Um, I currently live in Elgin, Illinois, and at the moment I'm actually a pastor between calls. Um, my most recent call was as an assistant pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church, uh, PCA in Elgin. So just waiting and praying and seeing what the Lord opens up for me for my next step in ministry. So, But it is my, my pleasure and my joy to be here together with you. Uh, really, this first Sunday of Advent, and um, if I can, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. We're going to be spending our time this morning together in Hebrews, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at all 14 verses. And I don't know if this is a, a custom here at Missio Day, but at Westminster it certainly is. Um, Right before the preaching of the Word, we always stand for the reading of God's Word. So if I can ask you to stand, if you are physically able. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for God's people. Hebrews 1. Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering servants sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Let's begin with a word of prayer together. Our Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this morning just humbled by all the amazing things that you do. We're just coming out of thanksgiving, Lord. And I don't know about the people here, but when I think of all the things that have happened in my life, even this year, uh, the good and the bad, 
Uh, through it all, Lord, I have so much to be thankful for. And Lord, as we come into the season of Christmas this year, I pray that you would prepare our hearts through Hebrews 1 this morning. Lord, as we prepare ourselves to come to partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would teach us, Lord, this morning to examine our own hearts under the light of your word. And so, Lord, we pray with an earnest invitation, Lord, that you would be here in our midst, that we would sit at your feet now and learn from you and be transformed by your Spirit using your word. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we come to the end of 2019, um, I still have a hard time realizing it's the end of the year. I feel like just yesterday was New Year's Day. But we're coming to the end of another decade. And I don't know if some of you who are on social media have seen the trend. I've been seeing pictures of this quite a bit where people will post a picture of themselves in 2009, and then right next to it, in, in the frame right next to it, they have a picture of themselves today. And some of them, you know, you look at the person and you're thinking, well, they've, they're aging pretty well. There's not a lot of change there. In fact, I have a cousin um, who posted a picture of herself 10 years ago and, and this year, and I thought to myself, wow, I'm not sure I would tell her this, but I think she looks better now than she did 10 years ago. So she's doing quite well. You know, and then there's other people, you look at them and you think, hmm, well, that person put on quite a bit of weight. Or if they're like me, maybe their hair was a little thicker 10 years ago than it is now. And, you know, you see this change, but we, we tend to think in terms of before and after. That's a common way for us to think, before and after. In fact, that's really what the author of Hebrews is doing, not only in Hebrews chapter 1, but really in the entire book of Hebrews. He's drawing a contrast. Then and now. Before and after. And that's really the whole point of this chapter, is to compare something before and something after. And the chapters that we're looking at this morning is filled with contrasts between Jesus Christ as now versus what came before in the Old Testament. And so the big idea of this passage is actually quite simple. It's that Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, is superior to the prophets of the Old Testament as well as the angels. The superiority of Christ over the prophets and the angels. And as we begin to unpack this, it really unpacks in those two points. And so... Let's look together again at verses 1 through 4 for our first point, the Son's superiority over the prophets. Look at me at verse 1. We see the first part of our contrast here. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Stop there. Now, before we jump into this and just start picking it apart, we need to understand a little bit of the context, because the context is what you and I are going to connect to when we begin to apply this. The principle that comes from the, con the context is the situation of the Jewish believers in the first century. 
And the situation can be summed up in two ways, two experiences, two feelings that the Jews had at this time, uh, particularly Jewish believers. One is the feeling of shame over the name of Christ. In fact, we see a little bit of that in Hebrews 13.13. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, let us go to him, that's Christ, outside of the camp and bear the reproach, you can translate that shame, that Christ endured. You can imagine why he's saying that. I mean, Jewish believers today, as in the first century, um, you know, had, had a, an issue believing in Jesus. It wasn't popular. In fact, it wasn't the cultural norm for the Jewish culture and religion in the first century. We can see a little bit of that if you go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. Um, we have the story of Jesus healing the man who's born blind, and you remember the story. As, as the Pharisees and religious leaders um, you know, interrogate the man, tell us how this has happened, who did this? They didn't believe him when he said that Jesus did it. And so they find his parents, and, and in in John 9.22, it says his parents were afraid of the Jewish religious leaders because they already agreed that anyone who claimed to believe that Jesus was the Messiah was going to be thrown out of the synagogue. Believing in Jesus is not the norm for Jewish culture. And so to go against the flow of culture, you can imagine, quite sympathetically, I would think, that these Jews felt a little bit of shame to publicly acknowledge that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. But it's not just shame. Related to that is the feeling of fear of persecution. You see, in the first century, Judaism was actually an officially recognized religion in the Roman Empire. You could be a Jew in the Roman Empire, among the many cities uh, of that empire, and you can be relatively safe from persecution. In fact, when we read the book of Acts, we find Paul going to synagogue after synagogue after synagogue as he went from city to city to city. Judaism was common. It was protected by law, but Christianity was not. Christianity was centered around a man who claimed to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. In fact, the Christian confession, Christos Kurios, Christ is Lord, ran in direct contradiction to the Roman imperial confession that Caesar is Lord. Christianity was not protected. In fact, you can imagine when persecution starts to heat up, religious gatherings tend to get thin. And that's why I think in Hebrews 10.25, we find the author of Hebrews telling them, um, do not neglect the meeting together for mutual encouragement and to stimulate one another to love and good deeds as you see the day of Christ's return coming. And so this feeling of shame over the name of Christ, the fear of, of outward persecution by the Gentiles and by the government was leading many Jewish Christians to revert back to Judaism 
and to turn their back on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the situation that the author of Hebrews is writing to. And so as we jump back into verse 1, we see the first part of his his contrast, and there's four components. And the components are pretty simple. First, long ago, at many times. So sometime in the past. Secondly, God spoke. Pretty simple enough. Except for we often miss in our English translation that the word God spoke in, in Greek is what's called a participle. Those of you who are into grammar, probably not many of you, know that that's an I-N-G word, like walking, speaking. And so I think it's better translated, God was speaking in a continuous sense. And that continuous speaking of God looks forward to some finality where he stops and you can say, God has spoken. Done. But back then, they weren't there yet. Who's he speaking to? Our fathers, our ancestors. And how's he doing it? Well, by the mouth of the prophets. Quite simple. You know, when you look at some of the examples of these prophets, and I'm only going to pick three for the sake of time, um, you can see exactly the contrast that the author of Hebrews is going to build on the other side in verse 2. Think about Moses for a minute. One of the things we find about these prophets that they all have in common is that they were men who received the promises of God. They endured tremendous amount of hardship, and yet they continued to look forward to the fulfillment, staying faithful to walk with the God who had called them. Think about Moses for an, exa- for, as, for an example. In Exodus 32, you might remember the story of the, the golden calf. And God actually tells Moses, stand back, I'm going to just wipe these people off the map. And Moses gets in there and he intercedes for them, much like Christ, interceding for sinners. God decides, okay, I'm going to show mercy on them, but I need you to lead them through the desert. And Moses, as probably many of us would have the same response, Lord, why me? Why do I have to be the guy to put up with all of that and all of them? They've done nothing but complain. They've done nothing but grumble up to this point. And in Exodus 33 and 34, God shows Moses his glory. And what's interesting to me is it takes that specific, unique revelation of God's glory to Moses to get him through the next 40 years of difficulty. Because if you read through the book of Numbers, you'll find not only do the people continue to backslide into sin, not only do they continue to grumble against Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, who are leading the people, but on many occasions, they go to actually stone Moses. Think about that. The prophet of prophets in the Jewish mindset was not even honored in his own time. He had a difficult trial to endure, almost losing his life to the very people he was trying to lead. And yet Moses endured. Moses did not turn his back on the Lord. Moses didn't say, let me just go back to Egypt where it's all easy. 
free of trial. Think about the prophet Isaiah. I was actually glad that we read that this morning as the call to worship. Very similar to Moses, Isaiah had a very unique vision of God's glory. You remember in the year King Uzziah died, as we read, he went into the temple and he had a vision. He saw the Lord seated on the throne and the train of his robe filling the temple. And you can imagine the majesty of that scenario as he, he's seeing the, the angels flying around guarding the holiness of God. And as God begins to speak, the entire threshold shakes. Isaiah freaks out, oh, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And yet what's interesting to me is when God commissions Isaiah to go and to preach among the southern kingdom of of Judah, 700 years before Christ, God gives Isaiah what I would imagine to be one of the most discouraging pep talks as you're about to send a guy into ministry. If you look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, God says, you're going to go to these people, but they're not going to listen to you. Having eyes, they're not going to see. Having ears, they're not going to hear. Their hearts have grown dull. Now, I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, I'm not sure I would want to receive that kind of calling and commission to go to these people and have the Lord come to me in a vision and say, you are going to preach until you are blue in the face and until you've lost your voice and it is going to do very little. Isaiah had a tough time. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, we call that chapter the Hall of Faith. And it just lists a bunch of Old Testament saints who were faithful to the Lord through difficult times. And in Hebrews 11.37, it says some of them were sawn in two. Jewish tradition uh, holds that Isaiah was one of the prophets whom King Manasseh had sawn in two for prophesying the Lord's word. And did Isaiah, did he relent? Did he turn away all of those years during the reigns of all those kings, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Jotham, uh, even Manasseh unto death? Did he turn away? No, he didn't. He continued on. Why? Because Isaiah was the, the prophet who had the promise, the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 who was going to come and make purification for sins. One last example, the prophet Daniel suffered exile. I mean, he bore the punishment of exile with his people for their sins. And he got taken to Babylon. He was even thrown to the lions in one chapter, as you remember. But he had an interesting vision in chapter 7 of Daniel. He saw the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, to the Ancient of Days, and he saw this Son of Man receive dominion and receive a kingdom. 
You see, what's interesting is what the, the author of Hebrews is doing in, chap, in verse 1. He's drawing the contrast by showing these Old Testament prophets had promises given to them of the glories that were, were to be revealed. And in chapter 2, we see the other side of that contrast. Instead of long ago, we have, but in these last days. Instead of God spoke in a continuous way, we have, He has spoken to us, not to our fathers. And by the way, that word, He has spoken to us, is, is an indicative verb. What that means is, it is a once for all thing. It happened, it's done. It's not going on anymore. And He didn't speak to us through the prophets who just merely received God's word. He spoke to us by the mouth of His Son, who is the very Word of God. So you can see the contrast here, the superiority of Christ. And I love what he does in, at the end of verses 2 all the way through verse 4. Look at that again. We're not going to say everything there is to say, but just let's glance at that again. He's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, to whom he also created the world. So we find that this son is not just the bearer of God's word. He's the, the one who puts God's word into action as creator and redeemer. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Isn't that interesting? Because Moses, when he asked God in Exodus 33, show me your glory, when he was going through one of the greatest trials of his life, trying to spare God's people Israel. God tells him, if you remember, I'm going to make all of my goodness pass before you. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over your face. And then until I pass by, I'll remove my hand and you can see my back. But my face you cannot see. For no man can look at God's face and live. And so that's exactly what happened in the beginning of Exodus 34. But what a contrast. We don't see the back of God here in verse 3. We see in Christ the radiance of the glory of God. And get this, the exact imprint of his nature. That word imprint is actually the Greek word character, which is where we get the English word character from. To know someone, to see someone, is to see their character. It's not just to look at the contours of their face and see the glory and the beauty of their face, but it's to see the heart worked out in their character. And that's exactly what this passage tells us we see in the face of Jesus Christ. We see the exact imprint and the character of God's holy nature. What a contrast. And it says, after making purification for sins, there's the fulfillment of Isaiah's suffering servant to build the contrast. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What a contrast to Daniel receiving this vision of the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days and receiving a kingdom. We see the fulfillment here. Jesus Christ has made purification for sins. 
And by the way, when you go through the book of Hebrews, it doesn't talk only about outward sins, but it talks about the cleansing of the heart, the cleansing of the conscience. It's not just the actions that are sinful that Jesus has cleansed. It's the motives of the heart. This is why Hebrews 4.12 can say, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It can divide between uh, thought and intention, between bone and marrow. The very things that we link together, God's word, the cleansing of Christ's blood is complete. It leaves no no stone of our souls unturned. And this is the superiority that the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage these Jewish Christians with to say, don't turn away from the fullness of these promises to something that was a shadow that came before. In fact, as we begin to apply this to ourselves, you might think, well, what does the superiority of Christ over prophets have to do with me? Well, The superiority of Christ over the prophets encourages me and you through the trials that we go through by highlighting God's faithfulness to his promises. That's what it does. I mean, think about it. We need to build the bridge again from their context to ours. We we talked about shame and we talked about fear. I mean, don't we feel the same thing sometimes? Or am I the only sinner in the room who wrestles with these things? Like, you know, one of the first things we noticed about this context is these Jewish Christians, why did they feel shame? Because their faith in Jesus Christ as Jewish believers went, ran contrary to the cultural expectations of the day that they had. Brothers and sisters, how are we any different? Um, You know, one of the things cultural commentators tell us today is that we are, if not entering into, we have entered into what's called a post-Christian culture, a post-Christian society. In fact, a lot of the biblical values and morals that we tend to hold to, that we get from Scripture, are being undermined slowly, but I would say effectively in our society. And it's, been ha- it's not new. This has been happening for, for decades. You know, what we would call sinful are, is becoming more and more accepted, and not just accepted, but championed today. I mean, in a time when faithfulness to Jesus Christ and His Word is most unpopular, it is very tempting, very tempting to be ashamed of the name of Christ in the public sphere. I have a pastor friend in Bartlett, um, not a PCA guy, but certainly a strong Bible-believing Christian, uh, who told me a story about a year ago of something that happened several years back now. Um, he was asked to do the, the community prayer at, at a you know, town-sponsored event. Um, and I can't remember what the event was, but he was there, and some towns do that. They ask, they kind of make the rounds and ask different religious leaders in town to offer the prayer to be inclusive. And he was asked, and so he got up and he he led the prayer, and he ended his prayer in Jesus' name, Amen. <laughs> Typical Christian prayer. 
he told me that shortly after descending the stage, uh, a woman came up to him and got in his face and started berating him. And it turned out she was the pastor of the more progressive church on the other side of town. And she got in his face, how dare you? How dare you preach or pray in the name of Jesus? Don't you know that not everyone here is a Christian? How intolerant can you be? Don't you know you could have offended somebody? And I, as he's telling me the story, I'm like, he's kind of an eccentric kind of guy, so I was wondering, oh, great, what did, how did you respond? So I asked, well, what did you do? And he said, I stopped her mid-sentence, and I, I took a step forward and got close to her. And I said, no, how dare you rebuke a brother in Christ for praying in the name of Christ? And he's like, don't you know what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8? That those who are ashamed of the Son of Man in this world before this sinful, adulterous generation, don't you know that the Son of Man will be uh, ashamed of you when he comes in his glory with his angels? And I thought to myself, oh, what did she say to that? <laughs> and... He said she actually got quiet because she didn't expect to be challenged back. I mean, she was trying to make a public scene and embarrass him. He didn't back down. <laughs> and I, he, I said, was that, is that it? She just got quiet and walked away? No, no, she, she got quiet and then she just started asking me. I hear that your church is, is growing. You guys have what, 500 people now? He said, yeah. She's like, how are you doing that? I'm struggling to get people to even come to church. And he said, you know, I wish I had a magic bullet to, to tell you to use, but the only thing I do is I preach the Bible. She's like, that's it? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Talk about a guy who was not ashamed to stand for the name of Christ but so many of us are tempted to when the world wants to put us to shame. And the second thing is fear. And look, you and I are not any different than the people back then. We have the same fear that oftentimes is related to the same sense of shame that we bring to the table. And it's the fear of persecution. Um, I don't know if any of you followed the story for a few years, but um, Pastor Andrew Brunson, uh, the evangelical Presbyterian minister who was doing some mission work in Turkey, um, was put in prison for two years and just got out. Um, he actually spoke at the Southern Baptist uh, National Convention meeting this year, and he made the comment, he does not believe that most pastors and most churches that he comes across are effectively preparing the body of Christ to endure the persecution that will inevitably come. He said it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Now, I'm not one who likes to think about persecution. I like to be comfortable. But, you know, it's easy for me to point out 
Christian celebrities who either walk away from the faith or will not take a stand on key issues going on in society around us because they fear that their reputation is going to be tarnished or companies like, I'm just going to say it, Chick-fil-A because it's in the news recently, who pulls their funding from Christian organizations under the pressure of the LGBTQ plus agenda? It's easy for me to point to these problems and say, look at them. They fell short. But you know what's much harder? What's much harder is to point at myself and to examine my own heart and to say, yeah, those are problems. I'm disappointed in those things that they happened. But what would I do if I was in their shoes? I don't know the pressure of being a celebrity. I don't know the pressure of being in charge of a multi-million dollar business. What would I do? And it's, it's something that I think we all have to take seriously. Because when we talk about ashamed of Christ, being ashamed of Christ, or fear of persecution, do we, are we quick to look at our own hearts first? Before we look at how other people have responded. Because I'll be honest, as I look at my own heart, I think to myself, okay, I have the same weaknesses that they have. And when I see how weak I am spiritually, it makes me a little more compassionate for those who maybe aren't as spiritually strong, but maybe need prayer. You know, we have the benefit of living in a time where we have the promises fulfilled. You know, we talked about Moses, we talked about Daniel, we talked about Isaiah, we talked about the trials they went through, but brothers and sisters, they did not see the promises fulfilled. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see. Talking about those long ago at many times. And he said, they didn't see it. They wanted to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. And yet they were faithful. And I want to take this two steps forward because it's easy to say we have the promises fulfilled in Christ, and that's true. Not only do we have the promises recorded for us in the Old Testament, not only do we have the Gospels recorded for us where we can see the promises fulfilled, but we also have the rest of the New Testament, including the book of Hebrews, which takes those promises, which takes the fulfillment, and then it explains it, interprets it, and applies it to our Christian lives. We have so much treasure spiritually in these jars of clay simply because of the time that we live in. And I want to encourage you this morning that don't squander the resources spiritually that Christ has given you. This is why the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he goes on to say, um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then you know what he goes on to talk about? He goes on to talk about things like election and predestination. The fact that God chose you. 
He goes and talks about things like justification. The fact that he, he would declare a sinner like you righteous by faith. He talks about the blessing of adoption. That you who maybe are in marriages who you don't feel like things are jiving or working out and you feel lonely or maybe you're single and you feel lonely, uh, no one understands you, you have a family because of adoption. He talks about blessings like um, being sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Brothers and sisters, those are the things, I'll be honest with you, that I was most thankful for this year. Yeah, I had my family with me. Yeah, I ate more than my body frame probably should have taken in. But at the end of the day, uh, the food gets digested. I don't like to think about it, but my family members... If history goes, continues the way it's been going, they will pass away. Um, My siblings' careers will take them in other places away from me. But no one can take away the promises that have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus and sealed to me by the Holy Spirit. And so I just want to continue to encourage you, brothers and sisters, the gospel is not like you come to Christ and it's like one, two, three, or A, B, C. Like, okay, I did the first rudimentary steps, what's next? Right? That's not what the gospel is. The gospel's not like you do something and then what's next? The gospel's your whole life. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to see here through in this chapter, but throughout the rest of the book. He's trying to get us to see that Christ and His work is everything to us. And that leads us to our second point and our final point this morning, the son's superiority over the angels. Now, if you're me and you're a careful reader, you're probably going to think, well, why is he going from prophets to angels? Well, throughout the Old Testament period, the Jews actually thought that uh, the angels were very instrumental in revealing God's word to the prophets. And so it's just simply the next step. And he continues this contrast theme in verses 5 through 14. And again, because of time, we're not going to say everything there is to say, but we do want to briefly scan over this. So I want to look at our first little sub-point here, the superiority of the firstborn son in verses 5 and 6. Take a look at that. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In verse 6, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship, or that word can be translated, bow down to him. Now, if you look in your Bible at this section, there are actually a string of seven Old Testament quotations. Each of them is very important. But what he's essentially doing is building the supremacy of Christ. And what's his purpose for doing that? His purpose for doing that is to give us a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ that leaves us in awe and captivates and captures the very affections of our hearts. In fact, when he says, You are my son, today I have begotten you, he's quoting from Psalm 2.7. And it's a psalm that describes what happens after Jesus is crucified by the Jews and the Gentiles. He he doesn't stay dead. 
He, is, he rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven. And where does he go? He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he has this special relationship to God that we see at the end of verse 5 that God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, 14. And the question I don't want you to miss It's easy to miss the question that he's asking amidst all these quotes. The question is, where or when did God ever say to the angels these things? And the answer to the rhetorical question is never, because he said it only to the Son. In fact, what does he say in contrast to the Son about the angels in verse 6? When he comes, the angels will bow down to him very simple. The angels, according to Psalm 97.7, which verse 6 quotes, are simply the servants of the coming son of David. Verses 7 through 12 moves on from the superiority of the firstborn son to the superiority of the throne of the eternal son. Take a look at that. And this is actually very interesting. In verses 7 through 12, he builds this picture of Christ as the king and what that means. He describes the angels first in verse 7. He makes his angels and his ministers a flame of fire. Fine. All he's saying there is the angels are part of God's created order and therefore subject to the Son's decrees. But look at verses 8 through 12. Actually, I want to hone in most of all right now on 8 and 9. Because he's quoting from Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You know what's special about Psalm 45, which he's quoting from there? Psalm 45, if you read the superscription, it's a love song. (laughs) You're asking yourself, what does a love song have to do with the throne of the king of kings? Well, when you read the first couple verses of that, that chapter, you find that the king is on a conquest. The king is on a conquest to remove all of the obstacles that stand in the way between him and his bride. Because... In the context of Psalm 45 itself, most scholars think that it was about Solomon's uh, wedding to one of his wives. But it describes the bride in, in, in stunning imagery. She's got the cleanest and finest of garments. She's got the best gold jewelry. She has been beautified and made ready for the king. But before the king gets the bride... He has to go on conquest and take away all the obstacles that stand between him and the bride. Now think about what Hebrews has already talked about and how that applies to Christ. The church is the bride. What stood between Christ as the groom and the church as the bride? Sin. And, as a result of sin, death. That's exactly what Christ did. He made purification for our sins and he rose again from the dead to defeat in the flesh the power of sin, Romans 8.3, 
and rose again from the dead so that you and I can have life and be made beautiful in the eyes of the king so that when he takes his seat as, as king on the throne, it's with his bride in view. Now, if that does not capture the affections of God's people, to know that they had promises that this was going to happen long, long ago, and it has now begun to happen, that they are being prepared for their king, for the final wedding day, when they enter into his glory, in his kingdom, those are the kinds of things that should stir the hearts of God's people. And we know that the Lord is precise in all that he does because look at, look at what verses 10 and 12 say. I'm just going to focus on verse 10. You, Lord, have laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Stop there. The Lord is precise in all of his doings. We talked about in the context the trials the Jewish Christians were facing. Do you think those trials were in vain? Do you think those trials caught the Lord by surprise? Do you think those trials found the Lord unable to meet his people and demonstrate his love to them in those trials? The answer is no. No. He's very precise as the king. And just as he laid the foundation of the earth, he's preparing the kingdom for the bride. And I love the end of verse 12. It builds a contrast because the earth, creation, it's all wearing down. But look at the end of verse 12. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Let me just illustrate the importance of that. Particularly for those of you who are married. If you've been married for 30 years, who you were when you got married is not the same person you necessarily were, are now. A lot of things have happened. You've faced a lot of ups and downs together. In fact, many times you may have thought that those ups and downs have brought you to the end of yourself, but they have broken you. They have changed you. Notice what it says about Christ. You are the same. Yes, he was broken at the cross. <laughs> yes, he was risen from the dead. But those things did not change him. He is the same today, yesterday, as he will be tomorrow, to use the language of Hebrews 13.7. What confidence we have in this description of the Son, that He is King, He will always be King, and He is in control of every area of His people's lives. And the last thing in verses 13 through 14 that we come to is a repeat of the question we find in verse 5. Look at verse 13. To which of the angels has He ever said? There's no one like this King. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then he describes as a question what the angels really are. Are they not all ministering spirits 
sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And again, you may find yourself asking, okay, this is fine. He's superior to the angels. What does that have to do with me? Well, again, just like the last point had to do with encouragement, this has to do with strengthening. The superiority of Christ over the angels strengthens me knowing that Christ is on the throne today, governing every area of my life until everything is brought under submission to him. And as we, as we apply this, as we come to a close, we're going to start big and work our way to something very small and precise. First, the big. Christ's throne is authoritative over every area of our lives. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that history has a Christ-word direction and focus. Everything is working in history to the point where everything is going to be subdued under Christ. Now, I, I can't exactly logically tell you how I got that certainty. The Lord has just given me that certainty. Okay? I read His Word, and I know it's true. The Holy Spirit is working in my heart. It's difficult when you see all kinds of things going on in the world that don't seem to comport with that. But then when you start dealing with people and you get, in, get into their lives, as uh, Pastor Paul was sharing some cool stories about how you guys are getting into the lives of your community, the more you interact with people, the more you will see. You know what? People may not see and understand what God is doing in their lives, especially if they're not believers. But as Christians, we have a unique perspective to, to step into those situations and encourage them and strengthen people to say, you know, I, here's how I see God working in your life. And that begins to open doors for the gospel. It's amazing. But interestingly enough, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into the heart of man. Yet, I want to focus on this, Yet, so that he, man, cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. This is why we walk by faith. There's a lot of things, brothers and sisters, that have happened to me this year. There has been a lot of pruning in my own personal life. Do I know everything God is doing? No. But I know He's working. And that leads me to the next point because, look, God's work drives deeper than simply looking at outward circumstances. When it says that Christ will, con will conquer all of his enemies and put them under his feet, look, it's easy to look at outward things and be like, oh, is he talking about governments and human kings and cultural things? I mean, yeah. But that's easy. The harder part, again, is to look at our own hearts. Now, I, I don't necessarily care what it is, but think of a sin that you struggle with. And think of what that action looks like and how it's wreaked havoc in your life. It's easy to just identify the surface level problem. But any good doctor, when you go to a doctor with a problem, is going to want to know what's causing the symptoms. What's going on underneath the surface? Our hearts are all like that. 
And I don't care if you're dealing with anger, if you're dealing with greed, you're dealing with lust, whatever it is. There are issues that go layers down into our hearts. And I want to strengthen you this morning from God's Word by encouraging you that, look, the blood of Christ is more than sufficient to change every layer of our heart the further down we go. Each of our hearts is like a deep well, brothers and sisters, and we can come to it and in the heat of the day when the sun is shining, but when you look down into that well and you can hear the water maybe dripping down there off the bucket, it makes that echoey noise, and then you just think to yourself, how deep does that water go? And then what's below that? And just what is really down there? That's what the human heart is like. That's what your heart is like. That's what my heart is like. But you know what? We have a promise here that when, when God tells His Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Look, every enemy, including the sins that dwell very deep in our own hearts, are going to be conquered by Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul can encourage the Philippians and strengthen them in Philippians 1.6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who started a work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You will not be abandoned by the King because you're part of the bride He loves. And that leads me with our last kind of bit of application here. Again, a little bit of strengthening and encouraging. I love what he says in verse 14. Are not all the angels ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Look, the author of Hebrews has marshaled a bunch of Old Testament texts and promises to strengthen the resolve of his people. And he also gives his Holy Spirit, and he also gives um, the angels to the work of actually work, um, being used by God to accomplish purposes in each and every one of our lives in ways that we can't see. And so this biblical worldview that we have calls us to understand that God uses supernatural means to accomplish things that to us look like natural phenomena. A change in attitude. More Christ-likeness. But brothers and sisters, as we come to the table of the Lord, I want to just remind you, again going back to Psalm 45, there was an amazing feast at the wedding of Solomon and his bride. That feast is only meant to point forward to a greater feast that Christ will celebrate as king with his bride. And we get to be a part of that. And this morning as we come to the Lord's table and prepare ourselves and our hearts for that, I want you to keep in mind that what we're doing anticipates the great feast that will bring so much joy to us because unlike Moses, we're not going to see the back part of the king. We're going to see the king face to face. Let's pray.